Hello and welcome to Philosophy Gets Schooled. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording this episode in April 2023. This episode is about scepticism and the limits of knowledge. So we'll be thinking about what scepticism is, varieties of scepticism and motivation for them, and responses to scepticism. And we'll also see what else we get onto as always. Joining me in this episode, we have Ben Jones from King Edward Sixth College in Stourbridge. Hi, Ben. Hi, yeah. And we've got Beth McIntosh, who's a visiting research and knowledge exchange fellow at the University of Winchester and also head of philosophy and religious studies at Winchester College. Hi, Beth. Hi, Simon. Hi, Ben. Uh, great to have the two of you with us. Okay, so we're going to talk about a significant set of issues within epistemology uh, about scepticism and the limits of knowledge. These topics appear on the AQA A-level philosophy spec, which we're basing our discussion around. Uh, but these topics also appear in the IB and Scottish hires. And it's also a very important background for any religious studies specification, such as OCR, Edexcel and Educast, particularly when one is thinking about the arguments of the existence of God. I imagine God will come up uh, later on. It's very hard to keep him out of any discussion, really. Um, OK, so let's start with basic definition of scepticism and thinking about brains in vats. So, Beth, do you want to start us thinking about brains in vats and we'll take things from there, please? Yeah, sure. So we want to start by thinking about um, the nature of philosophical scepticism and what philosophical scepticism is. So philosophical scepticism is the position that one or more of our usual methods for justification for claiming our beliefs, our knowledge is inadequate. And so we do not, in fact, have knowledge. So it's a good, I think a good place to start is to start with um, American philosopher Hilary Putnam, who if you're a upper sixth and you're revising philosophy of mind, you'll know Hilary Putnam well. But Hilary Putnam is famous for his brain in a vat thought experiment. So um, just I'll just read a little bit of it from um, his Reason, Truth and History. And it's chapter one, Brains in a Vat. Here is a science fiction possibility discussed by philosophers. Imagine that a human being, you can imagine this to be yourself, has been subjected to an operation by an evil scientist. The person's brain, your brain, has been removed from the body and placed in a vat of nutrients which keeps the brain alive. The nerve endings have been connected to a super scientific computer which causes the person whose brain it is to have the illusion that everything is perfectly normal. There seem to be people, objects, the sky, etc. But really, all the person you is experiencing is the result of electronic impulses traveling from the computer to the nerve endings. The computer is so clever that if the person tries to raise his hand, the feedback from the computer will cause him to see and feel the hand being raised. Moreover, by varying the program, the evil scientist can cause the victim to experience or hallucinate any situation or environment the evil scientist wishes. So we tend to start our, uh, this wrap up of the epistemology unit with the brain in a vat thought experiment and you open up to your students and you say, right, well, you know, could you know if you are in fact a brain in a vat? And you want to stress to the students that this is an example of philosophical scepticism because the brain in a vat thought experiment does undermine our usual justification of belief. In this case, it's perception. See that podcast. Um, and the doubts raised can't be alleviated by evidence. 
So it's a great place to start in terms of we've now got an introduction to what we'd refer to as philosophical scepticism. So philosophical scepticism, remember, is the position that one or more of our usual methods for justification for claiming our beliefs, our knowledge is inadequate. So we do not, in fact, have knowledge. Okay, great. Thanks, Beth. Ben, uh, do you want to come in at this point? Any thoughts from you? Yeah, uh, the thing that I mean, that example's a really, really good one because what it does, it, it does bring that idea of philosophical scepticism right to the front. And I think the big thing with it is, is it's like, I guess it's almost like a philosophical rite of passage in, in many ways that you discover this thing, this philosophical scepticism, this global scepticism that we'll probably come on to in a bit. And it's something that you have to work through. And even if you end up in a position where you kind of fully endorse it and sort of say, I, I completely agree. I don't think we can get out of these doubts about brains in vats and all these sorts of things. It almost ends up not being the most interesting question. That idea of do you know whether or not you're a brain in a vat isn't really the interesting question because you might just go, no, and then it ends. But actually it's the it's the so now what? that's the bit that gets really, really interesting. And it's like a lot of other debates that we've and things that we've looked at previously. So I'm thinking about stuff like the meta-ethics-y sort of stuff where you end up in subjectivism and relativism and even nihilism and all this sort of stuff. And those are fine questions to ask, you know, kind of like, do we know that there are objective values or what happens if there aren't, you know, is it possible that there are no objective values? Isn't it all just made up socially? The big question is then the, well, what now? What do you want me to do with that? And, and I think that this is a really good place for epistemology to almost is to actually start with this. Okay, imagine that we know nothing, what now? And it actually pushes you to find the stuff that you do know in a strange sort of way, that actually you realise that maybe you're looking at the, that you've asked the wrong question in the first place, that you actually you need to just shift your perspective and all of a sudden new things start becoming illuminated. Yeah, that's brilliant. Because exactly that, that if scepticism is the only tenable position, well, okay, that's that's one route. But then you want to move that out and say, right, let's think about the quality of our evidence and the quality of what what, what we do have. That's great. Then, yeah. Yeah. So in fact, I mean, I was reading a couple of things in, in prep for this. And one of the pieces I read kind of stressed, it's not as if scepticism is a, is a body of claims, right? That everything is false or something like that, partly because there's paradoxes there. If everything is false, is scepticism is false. Ha, 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 um, right? Really, scepticism is a, is a philosophical challenge, right? And you can carry on being the person who keeps on being challenging. That's a little bit annoying, <laughs> right? <laughs> or you can do... If you kind of keep on sneering at what every anyone claims, they well, you don't really know that, you can't justify that, etc. You can carry on doing that. It's a bit annoying. Or you can do, you know, what what Ben was just saying is that then you ask the question, now what? Now what? So it's, it's a really interesting challenge that gets you to think, okay, where can we build from? Um, what's the status of things I'm claiming to know? What's what's the purpose of justification? Um, what kind of what what do we mean by evidence? And and you know, what what can we live with? I suppose exactly. And that's so relevant, isn't it, for people to young people today when they they think you know you're going to come at me with this thought experiment again? What's the relevance of this? And it's about that. It's saying, well, what now then? Because you need to decide where you are in terms of what quality of evidence you accept and why as young people in the world today. So it can be made hugely relevant um, yeah. to society. 
So, Beth, can I ask you a question? Because when you were reading out um, very helpfully that um, stuff from Hilary Putnam, about yeah. that, you stressed a, a few times philosophical scepticism, right? So that invites the question. Yeah. So is philosophical scepticism, and on the specification, and indeed in our everyday lives, we might have a normal sense of incredulity or disbelief. So, yeah. so how are we going to draw out the so, difference between those two? Yeah, so this is important on the spec because we have to draw this distinction between sort of like normal incredulity, ordinary doubt and philosophical scepticism, which we've defi- we defined at the beginning. And that's a very classic sort of three marker question to define what um, philosophical scepticism is. But you need to be able to know the difference. So we need to think about what it is to have kind of doubts or for students to be able to have and explore some of the doubts they might have in everyday life. And um, I've had some doubts this week, I can recall. I mean, I've been very worried and doubtful about what date my godson's birthday was. Like, was it Wednesday this week or was it Thursday? And his mum had a birthday the week before, and I was getting quite doubtful about what the exact date of the birthday was. And then um, we're in Pembrokeshire for Easter, and we're thinking of going foraging, and we're going to obviously have lots of periods of doubt on that process I imagine about what we pick and might decide to eat so what berries and (laughs) mushrooms we're going to go for and they're examples of um of just kind of ordinary doubts people might have like you know is that the sort of mushroom or the sort of berry I, I should be eating and what date is my godson and my friend's my friend's birthday. So that's an example of sort of everyday doubt. And that's very different, or that normal incredulity, we call it, or that ordinary doubt is different to philosophical scepticism. And what you want to do with the students is say, okay, well, here's some doubts I've had in my life, you might, or this week, you might have some doubts as well. Let's think about why that's different to um, the philosophical scepticism that we see in brain in a vat and there are some particular things that you see within normal incredulity that you can explore in terms of how you manage that doubt because obviously with normal incredulity and those doubts I've just mentioned they can be solved and and alleviated by quite straightforward quite ordinary you might describe evidence Um, they're usually challenging just a sort of a very particular thing or a very particular belief or small number of beliefs, people, memories. It's there's there's that more sort of specific, particular aspect to them. With the with the mushrooms in particular or the berries, they've got quite practical impact. Um, they're gonna, you know, and um and, and not just impact in terms of things like that, but they just it will affect your behavior quite considerably. And they are part of everyday life. You know, we we have these doubts and they're part of everyday life. Whereas what you can see with brain in a vat, um, which is a good example of philosophical scepticism and and global scepticism, which we'll go on to define in a minute. But what you see with philosophical scepticism and the brain in the vat is that you can see that it can't be solved with usual evidence um, because it's questioning and it can question all justification and it affects um, many, or in that case, all beliefs about what we claim to be knowledge. And What's going on in brain in a vat is a much more theoretical, conceptual process as opposed to a very sort of behavioural effect, behaviour affecting process. And obviously, in brain in a vat, it's extreme. So it's extreme doubt and hyperbolic doubt, which um, is a process that some philosophers use, like Ben was saying, to really uh, get you thinking about, OK, well, here we are and what's next? So a really important de- distinction for these pupils, because whilst they'll have to define philosophical scepticism, they also need to be able to think, right, OK, what's normal doubt? What's normal incredulity? What's ordinary doubt? Give some examples. 
explain the characteristics of that kind of doubt and then realise there's a very distinctive difference to philosophical scepticism and brain in a vat and evil demon, as we'll come on to. <laughs> Actually, I have to say, Beth, so it's perhaps you've you got a different life from me. So I, I, I was thinking of an example. I was going to the freezer this morning to get something out for my tea. And I just had some brown frozen sludge and I thought, I wonder what that is. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't foraging for much. Well, my doubts in term time are a bit different to my doubts in the holidays. I can tell you, normally it's like, is this clock right? Because <laughs> in the holidays, it's a bit more wholesome with mushrooms and berries. But in the in term time, my go-to doubt is just, are any of these clocks right at all? <laughs> is today really Wednesday? Um, yeah, exactly. I love that when you don't know what day it is. That's a good sign. <laughs> uh, ben, thoughts from you? <laughs> Yeah, I think that this is, is it worth bringing in like um, local and global now as well? Is that a good a good place to go? Yeah, um, the, the thing about philosophical scepticism as well is that it has this sort of universal or global quality to it, which was just mentioned there, Beth just mentioned this, this idea that it goes right down to foundations, that it goes right beyond specific claims that you're making. And the interesting thing is that I, I suppose if we if we go back a little bit, but when we use the word sceptic, one of the things that students might find across the board in other subjects is that the word sceptic crops up elsewhere as well. If, for example, you're studying new atheism, um, new atheists were happy to call themselves sceptics. It was quite a quite a common word for them to use. But but really, when you look at them, they're not sceptics in the same way of the sceptics that, that we're talking about. But there is an element of it to them. So the, the thing that they both share, I guess, that philosophical scepticism and then the scepticism of the new atheists or skeptic people who say that they're skeptical about anything really shares is that they've got this yes and how do you know that kind of quality to it's always this but how do you know that but how do you know that and the point is that the new atheists were doing it from this perspective of having this hyper empirical hyper rationalist kind of approach to things where they were sort of like yes but how do you know and then were very happy to accept though that actually if you within certain boundaries, which I think will become clearer when we look at the empiricist stuff, within certain boundaries, they were very happy to say, well, yeah, of course we know this stuff, but we don't know this stuff. And in fact, we would go as far as to say that it's meaningless twaddle and we should just get rid of it. So for them, they had this very narrow kind of conception of what really could be justified. And a lot of other stuff was excluded. And they called themselves skeptics because they were saying, well, our big thing is how do you know? That's our, our general approach to things is we only believe stuff that we think passes passes through the, you know, kind of the, the right court of appeal. And we don't think religion does. So no religious claims will ever meet that that standard. So that could mean that there are people who, to kind of narrow it down even more, there are people who will say things like well of course we can know things about the world but when we head into the supernatural it's not that we can make the claim that god doesn't exist we just have to accept an agnosticism we will never know that's more what we call local skepticism it's kind of like this in certain fields we can't have knowledge in certain discrete areas we can't have knowledge um this is going probably way too back for a lot of people but if you remember that uh, the character Dana Scully in the X-Files was always refer referred to herself as a skeptic, but she was only skeptical about certain things. She was like, she was more than happy to accept scientific evidence for things at face value because that's the stuff that we know. But then as soon as they started providing supernatural explanations for things, then all of a sudden she was, ah, well, how do you know that? Where did you get the evidence for that? That's ridiculous. 
So skepticism can be this global thing, which is just in general, how do we justify claims per se? And then you, or you might have an area say, well, we don't have to do it over here. But over here, I think that we don't, we are right to be skeptical and constantly demand that people provide justifications, normally with the underlying view that actually justifications there really aren't possible. Yeah, that's really important, isn't it? Because there's, at some point you have to bring in because the students will want to know like why we're doing this and a big part of the spec at this point is whichever way you do it whether you do it before or after these definitions and these distinguishing aspects it's that whole sense of what's the role of philosophical skepticism and like you said Ben it's all to do with this idea of you're you're sort of testing the strength of your knowledge and how we can justify it Um, and it's um, that role and function of skepticism needs a bit of fleshing out really for them as part of this these sort of distinguishing factors yeah yeah, so two thoughts from me. One, as you were speaking, Ben, about the new atheists and religion, it's worth pointing out for, for students uh, another part of the specification, that's Mackey's error theory, which Ben and I recorded, recorded two episodes on metaethics with Paul Moore Bridger. And when you look at, at Mackey, because he introduced his error theory as, as a type of moral skepticism, which is very, I think, very telling. So it's so again, it's that it's that aspect of well you you might believe it and in fact for Mackey you people did believe it and there are reasons to to doubt it Um, yeah exactly because it it's undercutting those kind of usual justifications which could be perception in which is where I discuss this elsewhere on the epistemology but you're right it's also that kind of those moral beliefs and you're making unwarranted assumptions there yeah that's right that's great then well sorry then a comment then 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 a question uh to the two of you so just to kind of um kind of summarize where we are with brain in vat of course you can challenge whether you're perceiving things right i'm just thinking about a, a, a comment you made beth about that it it challenges kind of in this global way it challenges all all forms of knowledge we might have so it seems like you know straightforward perception doesn't work straightforward testimony doesn't work because it might be the evil scientists or the supercomputer or whoever's running the vat is just making up people uh, to for you to interact with who are telling you things and actually you can't really believe you believe their testimony but in fact their testimony is is false and in fact they don't exist either right and then also there's there might be I mean if, if it's a particularly kind of evil scientist and a particularly super supercomputer then it might be telling you things about mathematical truths or geometrical truths and those might be kind of crazy as well right so it, it really is undercutting all the forms of justification that we that we standardly think through which is why it's interesting it appears at the end of the of epistemology rather than the start right because it's giving you it's messing with your mind right right at the end kind of all this stuff we've learned about perception and testimony and uh, and rationalism oh my goodness it looks like we can't believe believe any of it which kind of raises a question for for me to the two of you so so how do your students respond at this point do they kind of go running to the hills going, oh, my goodness, we can't know anything? Or do they just kind of laugh and say this is stupid? Or, or do they have, have some sort of different different response? We, I have quite an interesting experience with this because um, with my A-level students, they've obviously been on the journey with you through the epistemology unit. So um, if you set it up right, they're ready to bring in positions such as immediately, well, you know, I've, I've got, I can use Descartes here, or I can use the reliabilists, or yeah, I can, I've got the empiricists to hand. So they're sort of 
quite ready with those approaches. Where I find it really interesting is where we run a summer and an Easter school at the college online. And um, these students just, we we do Brain in a Vat kind of a bit more as a kind of standalone session. And I love the language they use to talk about it because they're coming at it with no understanding of um, maybe the theories. And sometimes their approaches are a little bit more interesting to reflect on. So we kind of have this standard student that just goes, oh my God, like, can I just go back to common sense? And they kind of head to that corner and then they start worrying. Well, obviously that's not maybe very helpful, but a a lot go empiricist without realizing it and just say, should we just get a grip? Like we've got enough, right? We've got enough to get on with some of the stuff we're also doing on this course, like the kind of practical, philosophical, political, political stuff. So yeah, it tends to be some go to common sense, realize that doesn't work and then move to empiricist. What surprised me is when people have tended to go to self through a more sort of theistic position as in they kind of think but I'm I'm engaging with a self in a kind of Cartesian way but they also want to bring in that religious theological aspect of I I, I don't think this can be this could be right in my kind of metaphysical worldview so yeah this yeah fascinating really because I've obviously trained the students with the theories on the A-level to be ready but my, my students that haven't come at it before have amazing responses yeah but interestingly, they, they just don't have the label for them. They're going to the same places. I think the same. They, when they've kind of been introduced to it out of the blue at some point, then you get a wide range of, of mixed reactions. And I think you're right. There, you, you, know, you did mention there that some people just go, this is stupid. Yeah. And, and you will get that. You'll just get a lot of people going, why is he wasting his time doing this? Um, and I think that with those sorts of scenarios, it's – you obviously get fewer of those once you've contextualized it. Um, once you've actually sort of, for example, if you're teaching Descartes, it's very difficult to do that without setting up why he's doing this in the first place. Or if you're discussing David Hume's approach to this, then it's probably already been set up because they've looked at his empiricism to some degree. And you just see that this is kind of the end result of it almost. Not, you know, kind of having to deal with skepticism is something that he's obviously got to deal with. And that's why it's at the end of the book, you know, that sort of thing. But the other contextual thing, I think, which which people do seem to get is if you if you put it into the context of where those lines of thought come from, you go back to ancient Greece and you look at, you know, Pyrrho and, you know, kind of look at those that are influenced by, you know, Sextus Empiricus and all that sort of stuff. You find this massive interconnection between the, I suppose, to some extent, going back to there with like Mackie and like kind of, a moral skepticism, you you end up with a massive connection between epistemology and how one lives. That the epistemology is not an abstract theoretical thing for a majority of the time. It's the very way in which we engage with the world and it affects the way that you do things. And so for them, it was a kind of like a an ancient Greek self-help. It was, you know, kind of like it, it stops you being stressed and confused and, and helps you out. But but at the core of that, even though that seems to be rejected in the early modern era, it's not it, it is now about understanding knowledge as knowledge, not knowledge as this thing that's this barrier to you being happy sort of thing. But it's still there. Like the, the point is that it still comes back to that idea of and how are we going to use this? How are we going to yeah, do it? Next, so yeah. even though it's in a very narrow theoretical area for a lot of people, or at least for the rationalists, and the empiricists broaden it out a bit more, there's still that huge connection between do you, you know, and your ability to say to students, do you not think 
that if you had doubts about the way the world was, it wouldn't affect how you do your common sense everyday stuff. That this is these are the sorts of questions that people need to tackle, so that we can go back to common sense in many respects, or so that we can use common sense well in many respects. So you can normally get people on board a little bit, I think. Yeah, and you get those clever students that love that whole. But can you ever really engage with global scepticism anyway? Because you've got the contradiction of well, the claim scepticism is true is self-defeating. So if someone's committed to global scepticism, they're committed to doubting everything. So they can also doubt scepticism is true. So like the kids that have been on the A-level journey, they love a bit of um, spotting that problem as well. So, but I love that, Ben. Yeah, it's back to what you said. It's just what now then? Because we've got to now decide what that means in terms of what we can work with. Yeah. Brilliant. Great. So talking of what now then, let's um, pause things there, (laughs) having set up uh, some of the issues, and uh, we'll move on to think in the next part about what Descartes says about knowledge and scepticism and think about some other responses as well. And welcome back. Uh, Before we move into this segment, two main thoughts. First of all, just to remind you to check out all our other episodes. We've got many episodes on all aspects of ethics and moral philosophy, loads of topics in epistemology and philosophy of religion. And in particular, the epistemology and philosophy of religion ones will have relevance to what we're discussing today. Um, And soon um, we'll be covering some other things as well. So as I said, we're recording this in April 23, as you hear. it's Easter's just happened. Uh, Beth's on her holidays, picking picking mushrooms and everything else. Um, And not not, not Easter eggs, but I'm sure that was happening a few days ago. Um, And then um, during the summer of 23, Orbean World will be covering topics in philosophy of mind. Some more stuff on Descartes and Hume, because I know Scottish hires uses that and i think we'll try and do some other things not on the spec but connected with us that's the first thing to say second thing to say um i said in the break it was amazing that we discussed brain in the vat without discussing the matrix so if you want to know about the matrix ask your parents kids it was a big film in the late 90s although ben did did mention the x-files and again see above just ask your parents if you want to know about the x-files i'd also like to put forward the uh, the books of philip k dick and if you want to do um if you want if you want to do one of those as a film total recall total, total, recall. total recall is vastly superior to the matrix and basically does the same job brilliant very good <laughs> good um right let's move on then and let's instead of going back just 20 years to our youths let's go back a few hundred years and let's think about Descartes we mentioned a couple of times in previous part and let's think about Descartes and his waves of doubt in the meditations so Beth do you want to start us off here please yeah so students pupils will be well aware of some of the things Descartes has been saying and have looked at him at various points in the epistemology unit and he'll have just come from uh, the intuition and deduction thesis so you'll be aware of Descartes but what we're thinking about here is how Descartes uses um, scepticism to help him establish certain knowledge so he um, is saying that he's going to look at all his beliefs 
to and in order to reject any which have room for doubt and thus will be left with only beliefs which are what we refer to as indubitable or certain. Um, and what he does is he sets up these, these waves of doubt. So the first wave of doubt, which students will be aware of from other bits of the spec and other bits of the epistemology unit, is that he recognises that his senses have at times deceived him. Um, and the spec talks about this in terms of illusions. Um, and this, therefore, calls into question um, knowledge gained via the, um, the senses. Then... I'll just go to the second wave of doubt because this sort of makes sense to put these two together. Um, and then um, we've got the second wave of doubt and he wonders whether he could be at this time, a moment in time dreaming because he's also, uh, he's aware that he's had these very realistic dreams in the past. And what we have with both illusion and this doubting of the senses in the first wave and then dreaming in the second wave is an example um, of a situation where you can't call those waves of doubt global scepticism because both of those doubts can be alleviated. So he says that um, the senses are only unreliable when things are sort of small or far away and generally an illusion or error um, would only affect one of the senses, not other senses. And you can use the other sense to check in and correct that. Um, and then in the case of dreams, he says we can tell the difference between dreams and reality um, in terms of which one is more vivid. And he argues that dreams actually prove there is a reality as by definition, a dream has to be a copy of reality. So if you're dreaming, there must be a real world to dream about. So there you have um, very sort of, you know, specific doubts, and those specific doubts can be alleviated in terms of the, those first, the first and second wave. But then we have the third wave of doubt. And um, the third wave of doubt, if you remember, is the idea that there's an evil demon deceiving Descartes, deceiving you, deceiving us potentially about um, his every thought. And the third wave of doubt is an example, obviously, of global scepticism, which we talked about in the first part of the podcast, because he says that this evil demon's deception is, you know, it's extreme and it's total, like we said, in terms of the characteristics of global scepticism, because all his senses a posteriori knowledge are called into question. Um, and he even then calls into question a priori knowledge because the demon could be tricking him about things such as two plus two equal, equaling four and whether squares are really four-sided. So we've got to yeah, bring in at this stage uh, a reflection on the waves of doubt and think about how this third wave of doubt is this example of, um, of global scepticism, which we talked about in the first bit of the podcast. That's great. Thanks, Beth. So, yeah, so we've got those three waves of doubt in the meditations, which Descartes takes through. And certainly whenever I teach this material to undergraduates, they're always kind of, you know, if they haven't done it before, they're kind of blown away by it. This is amazing. And then then they, they have different responses if we go through the meditations and say, oh, is that the solution? Oh, well, that's not so good. But they're <laughs> blown away, blown away by meditations one and two. So, but of course, he doesn't just leave things there because that's just the start. Um, and then he has his own responses where he tries to get us um, to think about global scepticism and what the chinks in the armour are, as I always think of it. Um, ben, do you want to take the story on uh, one stage for us? Would that be okay? Yeah. Um, I think the the thing to kind of remember when you're looking at his response is to try and step back and have a think about what he's already set up 
at the very start. So what the evil demon has done effectively is robbed us of all of our usual forms of justification or robbed us of all the ways in which we would normally try and defend our position on something. And this is incredibly useful for Descartes because what he wants is a solid a priori foundation for knowledge. And there's a bunch of reasons for that, like why he wants that. I mean, the one is just because it will make knowledge more secure. Because if you've got a belief which is based upon a shaky justification, then that belief is unjustified. It doesn't count as knowledge. Now, the point is that if you then realize that even those justifications have their own justifications and then they have their own justifications and so on, then if there is a weak point at anywhere down that line, then everything that follows from it is unjustified. Everything collapses. And so his worry is that you either find something unjustified and everything collapses, or you argue in a circle and everything goes wrong, or you go into an infinite regress and, and nothing is justified. So he wants that solid foundation. But also because what he and other rationalists have done is they've started by defining what they think the standard of knowledge is. They've started by saying knowledge is basically this kind of infallible belief. Or, you know, Leibniz and Spinoza have got their own versions and things like that. But it's basically this idea of we define knowledge first, we set the bar, now let's see if we can achieve that. In fact, they don't even say, let's see if we can do that. They go, we can, because we've got reason. I'm just going to show you how we can do it. Once we get to the, uh, the empiricists, you'll see that they're very different. They, they don't start by setting the bar and saying, this is what knowledge is. They start by saying, well, what have we got? And let's just see what we can do with it. But once you understand that about Descartes, then you can see how and why it is he's now making those, those next steps. Because just as if you, if I gave you a piece of glass and said, you know, I'm from a, a, a you know, trying to sell you double glazing. And I say, this glass is unbreakable. Probably the first thing that you're going to try and do is smash it. You're going to try and break it. And then if you can't break it, you go, yeah, I, I believe you. So if he's going to say, look, we're trying to find something indubitable, and I've just told you that this evil demon might be controlling you, the first thing that you're going to do is try and find the beliefs that you think can be doubted. And then when you fail, and they, you know, then hopefully that means they're indubitable. And so the big one is obviously the most famous one that he comes up with, that through all of this discussion, he has been present. He has been the thing having the illusion. He's been the thing having the dream. He's been the, the thing which is being deceived. And he says, so, well, maybe I could be in a situation where even an evil demon could convince me that I exist when I don't. And, and his argument depends, you know, the various readings of it that you get. But his argument is basically just at the moment that I assert that I exist, I grasp intuitively that that is true. And you can look at it the other way. At the moment at which I deny my existence, I immediately grasp the falsehood of that. So if you've got something where you immediately grasp the intuitive a priori truth of it, and you immediately grasp the a priori falsehood of its opposite, then you have an intuitive a priori truth. And from there, you should then be able to use deduction to kind of dig yourself out of this hole that you've got into. Because if you've got something which is a priori true, then anything which is any deductively sound argument that follows from that will have a true conclusion. 
And so all you're doing is you're saying, well, the premise of my one of the premises of the, my argument is I exist, and because I exist, I know this, and because I know that, I know this. And as long as it's deductive, everything that follows must be true, and the opposite would be contradictory to accept the truth of those premises and deny the conclusion. So that's how he then uses this sort of rationalist approach, this a priori approach, to get himself out of that. Yeah, and John Cottingham explains this really beautifully, doesn't he, when he does his sort of um, lectures and writes about Descartes and how he needs to get out from the mind, which is obviously really, really important, which we'll discuss in other sessions or probably this one, actually, a little bit later. But yeah, so you've got this, um, you've got the fact that, you know, he exists as a mind, as a thinking thing, but now he needs to get out from the mind and he's able and he has to, he thinks he's able to deduce that, um, deduce the existence of God, which gets him out um, and gets him to gets him to the well from there to the external world shall I run through the idea of um going from he has settled now on some beliefs that he thinks are impossible to doubt so we start with the Kagito, then going to the fact that he can deduce the existence of God and then um he can argue for the existence of the external world so as Ben brilliantly described we've got Descartes thinking that the very act of doubting proves that he exists as a mind a thinking thing that's a clear and distinct idea, cannot be doubted or confused. And it's, as Ben said, an a priori intuition. He's demonstrated the existence of himself just through reasoning alone. And as John Cottingham says, it's really, really important now that he doesn't stay in the mind. He has to he has to get out. And the way he gets out is through um, in a way that he deduces the existence of God. So he says, I have a clear and distinct idea of an infinite, perfect God. He goes on to say, all ideas have a cause. He goes on to say, the effect cannot be more perfect, greater than the cause. And then uh, first conclusion, I can't be the cause of my idea of God as I am finite and imperfect. Second conclusion, the idea of God must come from a perfect, infinite being. Another premise, only God is perfect and infinite. And final conclusions, only God can cause the idea of God. God must exist. So he has this deductive method of getting to the existence of God. And from there, he goes on to argue for the existence of the external world. And this is quite, a, you know, there's a formal, very well-known proof for Descartes' proof of the external world. So he says, I clearly and distinctly perceive a world of external physical objects. This cause must be either my own God or external physical objects. If the cause were my own mind, those perceptual experiences would be voluntary under my control. However, they're not voluntary. If the cause were God, then those perceptual experiences would be deceptive. However, they cannot be deceptive as God exists and is not a deceiver. Therefore, those perceptual experiences must be caused by external physical objects. And therefore, there is an external world of physical objects. And this is really important because each of these could easily be asked of the students to explain, first of all, of how does he get to you know, where does the Kagito come from? And then how does he deduce the existence of God? And then how does he get to the external world? And actually, when you set it up like premises, it's quite fun then because you can, you know, it's much easier then for students to find faults with lots of those premises. And if you haven't, and as John Cottingham says, he's got to get out from the mind, but if he can't get out from the mind to God, he can't then get to the external world. So I like setting it up as premises because I think it makes it much easier um, for students to find problems with that and Benjamin and Ben talked about the kind of the circularity of what he's doing as well 
Uh, that was really helpful, Beth. Uh, thank you. Yeah. So in fact, and on that journey, so there's, there's, there's holes to be picked at various points. I mean, as I mentioned uh, a little while ago, so my, my students are always blown away by the cogito. And then we go through, as you put in premises, the various things and they go, uh, really, uh, really? So but, but it's really important to understand uh, students that uh, along that journey, you've got, as Beth said, we've got God coming in and God's, you know, there, there's issues there of causation and something greater causing something else. Right. That's a key move. Having the idea of clear and distinct ideas and whether ideas are voluntary or not. That's a that's a that's a key move. And the idea of God being a deceiver or not. That's a key move as, as well. I think those are the ones that I always pick out. But there might be some yeah. that missed. Mm. Um, and like you said in other podcasts, if you know when students are trying to find a you know does this work going through the steps is really important because if an early step has failed you know it, this hasn't been successful so I thought you did that brilliantly in your perception podcast because you were talking about well if you don't agree with the breakdown of the primary and secondary uh, qualities you know Barclay's wrong there and then you know has it can he get to God and you know it's just really worth thinking about all the steps not to worry the student in in order that they can think about well you know if you're not coming going along with these and you find a problem with these premises this is how you find your way to taking a position on these arguments and whether you think this is a particularly strong or weak argument for your essay um because that's obviously a big part of the 25 markers finding like how strong or how successful do you think this this response is and and those steps can help them help them there i think great so before we move on from descartes then for, to, to both of you um how how impressive is what he does? Do you think it's impressive? Do you think there's the flaws are obvious? I mean, to the modern mind they might be, but um, I mean, and how do, how do your students respond to this? I think they, I don't know. I think I think just because of the sheer volume of Descartes that we study, they get fed up with him. I think that's. I don't. I, I think they stop. They stop treating him fairly because they're just like him again. What's he doing back? But I think that a lot of them do see, I think you're right, they see the initial part as very exciting and very challenging. I think that while it is probably unfair, if they use the same criticism of, of unfair criticism that they do with Barclay, they see a lot of this as being a bit of a cheap sort of deus ex machina kind of solution, which it isn't. It's it's argued for properly, but it doesn't mean that the argument's very good. And I think that they, they're they kind of often – the question that keeps arising where students think that they aren't getting something, they think that they're in error, and they keep asking, so so what – explain it again. What are these clear and distinct ideas things? Like what? how do I know when I've got a clear and distinct idea? And you know when you know you've got a clear and distinct idea? Because Descartes tells you you've got one. Descartes tells you – in fact, not even that. Descartes tells you that he's got one. And that's it. And it could be anything. It could be a. It could be a definition of God. It could be some deep metaphysical principle. But he's thought about it in isolation, and he just sees that it's true. And there's literally no other basis for for this other than he's got these thinky feels about them that he, that they kind of, that they stand out to him as true which kind of undermines the whole point of skepticism is that it doesn't matter how much you feel that it's true or that you grasp that intuitively that it's true it still might not be and so i think that's where it starts to fall down the more there's that reliance on him just going oh by the way and i've got this clear and distinct idea the more they go 
I wasn't sold on that in the first place. I didn't see, I didn't see why he could just say that these things are clear and distinct. So I grasp that they're true. I think it probably goes back to, I don't know, maybe something platonic. This idea of once you strip everything away, then you discover the thing in itself, and and that's just his version of it. But I, but yeah, I've never been particularly compelled by that, even when I'm trying to defend it to the students, really. Yeah, I'd agree. It's really difficult, isn't it? They are, like you say, and I think everyone's agreed, the students are quite impressed and enjoy, like find the Kagito very compelling. Um, and they just come from doing the intuition and deduction thesis, and they find that bit of the steps, you know, compelling to an extent. But then they struggle with this, um, the move to, you know, deducing God's existence and the way he does that. I think that's that's challenging for them. And then I suppose that there's they're also very much aware of the role of what he was trying to do in infallibilism right at the beginning of the course with, you know, uh, you know, what knowledge are we going to have? Because they are immediately, by the end of this period, unit, going to be thinking about, especially if you keep pitching the role of scepticism and what we might want to be saying and what we might want to be working with. It's that kind of, that practical aspect is still in their heads of, but what are we going to have? Like, what kind of, like, are we going to have much knowledge here? So I think, and that's a, b- a good thing, I think, to be bringing back, to sort of bring those, like, bring the course back together fully and to say, just remember what the, what we've got if we go down the infallibilist route. So um, not to hijack it and not to see it as, as the steps in the argument, but also to remember that that will say something on a practical note about what kind of knowledge we can have. And I think that's looming quite large for them as well. Um, and then, hey, the empiricists come in and um, it's a very different approach. <laughs> Okay, that's great. Um, So I think we'll stop things there and we'll think about empiricist responses and some other things in the next part. And welcome back. Okay, so we thought about scepticism and we've been thinking a lot about Descartes. Now let's move on and think about some other responses. We're going to start with the empiricists and I think we're going to start with Locke. So Ben, do you want to introduce Locke for us, please? I think when you're looking at Locke, I know I mentioned this earlier, but the if you imagine like Descartes has set up this definition, here's what knowledge is, let's see if we can achieve it. Um, and I guess then various philosophers disagreeing and finding his attempts to fail or finding his attempts less convincing or whatever it may be. Then you get philosophers like John Locke and and the people that followed him, the people who kind of like appeared in his wake, Barclay, Hume, Russell, years, you know, centuries later, taking, I suppose, a bit more of a practical down-to-earth approach, um, starting from the ground up rather than the top down and sort of saying – Let's approach the question of knowledge as almost like a descriptive exercise where we actually describe the way it works for us, which will be part of the process of trying to understand how to make it better. But um, there's loads of great phrases in in John Locke, um, which I'll do my best to remember, but phrases where he talks about things like knowledge needing to be of a certain standard for our practical purposes and things like that. They, it needs to be enough to be able to do the job that we want to do. You don't need infallibilism. You need enough to do the job that you're that you're attempting to do. So and and strangely Descartes has admitted to this in in the very early sections of the of the meditations, he said, 
you know, obviously I'm not going to go around thinking of evil demons in my daily life. I need the evil demon to help me sweep away my daily prejudices when I sit down to do philosophy, but I shouldn't be doing that when I kind of go into, go into the world. It's okay for me to do that. And I suppose what Locke is sort of starting with is to some extent that idea and saying, look, the, we have living in the daily world, our ordinary lives, and then we've got philosophy about epistemology. And the important thing is, is that Descartes is right, that we need to think about epistemological issues differently, but... This idea that we set the bar really, really high and then try and get over that bar is just absurd when you actually look at human beings and realize our faults and our flaws and our limitations. So isn't the best way to approach human knowledge actually to truly understand the limitations of different kinds of human knowledge and then attempt to work the best that we can within that area. Almost like if you kind of make a moral comparison, if I set the bar of moral behavior as omnibenevolence, then all behavior fails to meet that standard. And then what you can either do is say, therefore, we are weak and feeble and pathetic and nobody's ever moral. Or you go, well, omnibenevolence would obviously be the ideal, but let's just look with omnibenevolence in mind, what can we actually do? And, you know, how close can we get to omnibenevolence with what we've got? How close can we get to infallibility? And where we are infallible, what kinds of areas do we find infallibility and how useful is it? Where do we apply that and in what way? And so what you actually get is a complete repositioning of the question. And so I suppose this puts into context the stuff that was in the perception module and the perception podcast about how Locke is then attempting to use things like primary and secondary qualities and the involuntary nature of experience to give more inductive and abductive reasoning for the existence of the external world and um, for the regularity of what we see and, and how to deal with illusions and hallucinations or whatever it might be. Because he's trying to say, well, on a philosophical level, I'm going to be quite strict on these things and really think about them. And on a scientific level, I need to be testing and retesting. In my daily life, I can largely trust my senses, but I can mostly. Uh, and it becomes fairly obvious when I can't. Um, and we learn more by accepting that we're flawed and then attempting to find out the places where we might be wrong and attempting to move towards that. And I think it makes... I suppose kind of leading towards the the Barclay stuff, which I won't go into, I'll obviously throw this open so it's not just me. He's giving you a, just a different form of foundationalism. He's, he's saying the foundation is not a priori. The foundation is this a posteriori bunch of representations which appear before my mind. There is a base level, which is I can see colors and shapes and I can smell things and I can hear things, but what are those things? And rather than trying to prove deductively that the world is exactly as it appears to me, he sort of says, well, even when you look at his description of primary and secondary qualities, his starting point is not they're the properties of objects and objects have these things. It's they are the powers to produce sensation within me, that even physical objects to some extent are to be just understood as whatever it is that's making me see red, whatever it is 
that makes me taste apple. And if you say, yeah, but what are those things? He just goes, well, whatever it is. I mean, like, that's my limits. I mean, but what more do you want me to do? The job of philosophy should be dividing the stuff that's opinion from the stuff that's knowledge. That's that's us trying to find the line between those two things. And that is not us finding the line between what is infallible and not infallible. It's if I want to make a particular kind of claim, when can I make those particular kinds of claims well and when can I make them badly? And so it's a much more rooted, ground yeah. kind of approach to discussing knowledge, which doesn't make absurd demands of us nor is it so loose that it's just pure common sense hey we just take things as we find them it's a major shift though isn't it you've just been doing you know Descartes and then for all they've been struggling with Descartes you've then got this fact well you know the empiricists are going to really struggle to deal with skeptical uh, philosophical skeptical arguments like the evil demon or brain in a vat because you've got this belief that our knowledge is acquired justified via experience and if we can't know we're not brain in a vat or tricked by the evil demon you know we can't trust our sense experience so it's not a bad thing for them to go well actually look yeah Descartes on that front has got a sort of response and then the way the you know John Locke comes in and you know can sort of dismiss um, Cartesian scepticism and say that, you know, he doesn't think scepticism is practical is a a remarkable shift from where we've just been. And it's nice, actually, to show that balance for the students. And when they get into that anthology text, you know, the essay concerning human understanding, it is, it's like you say, Ben, it's such a different approach for them. So, you know, just suddenly now that, well, you know, our experience is going to provide us with all the information we need to live in the world and our sense data is going to give us information on which actions are going to help us and which are going to harm us and um, we've got enough information for practical purposes and so we're now in this position where we're going yeah well philosophical skepticism is just this purely theoretical thing and doesn't have this impact on our how we live and our behaviour. Back to your point earlier about you know this is about well what now? How do how do we live? And it's a, it's an incredible journey to go on, isn't it? From when you're there breaking down Descartes' premises and saying well, what do we think about this to suddenly go well Locke's saying all this great stuff, but he's going to dismiss scepticism now as purely theoretical. So yeah, it's it's brilliant. I think um, good arguments, I think though as well to support the existence of the external world, which they'll have picked up in other other yeah. bits. Sorry, Ben, what were you going to say? No, I was going to say that, that I, I think what helps as well is that he he gives a, a route in for those students who have listened to the evil demon argument and, and all those usual sorts of things. And there will normally be a bunch of students who say, who will go for the question of, but if the evil demon is creating this fantasy world, then why not just say that the fantasy world that's created just is reality, that... that that what is the what is the actual difference between <laughs> between reality and fantasy if uh, as far as i know there is no external reality there is just the fantasy yeah um and i think Locke is kind of giving a he's not just accepting that and going i fully agree let's let's go with that but he's giving a route into that to say yeah i mean let's imagine that fire doesn't really burn you but it feels like it does i mean do you just not want to stick your hand in a fire? I mean, what happens if what happens if only one in seventeen fires burns you? 
it's still probably not worth bunging your hand in to find out. That would still be enough for you to not put your hand in any yeah. fires just in case. So you do get this really great way to get those students who've just had the, the the bigger kind of metaphysical idea of, well, what about the nature of reality? And it just says, well, yeah, actually, it's about practically what we consider reality to be. Um, because if there is no other alternative, if the evil demon is going to keep me here forever, I may as well act like this is the real world. And there isn't a great deal beyond that. Uh, thanks, Ben. That's great. So um, we've covered a lot of empiricism. Should we just cover off the main points of Barclay and Russell so we can briefly just talk about reliabilism? Anyone want yeah. to talk about Barclay, Russell, Beth? Yeah, I'll do, I'll do um, Russell. So um, Russell, Russell and his famous cat, Russell uses the example um, of a cat. So, But Russell argues that the external world is basically the best explanation for our um, experiences. And he uses this example of a cat. And, um, you know, when you're not observing a cat, you know, it moves, it gets hungry, etc. And um, as sense data and hallucinations don't experience hunger and move, it makes sense to believe that there is a cat there um, after all, and that that cat is not simply uh, a simulation. So, He also argued that we sort of instinctively believe that there is an external world, so we shouldn't just drop or suspend that belief without good reason. We haven't talked about this, but there's an interesting parallel here with um, G.E. Moore when he does the two hands argument, which you might want to look up. That's quite an interesting one as well. But again, still, like Ben said, we're kind of in the inductive argument field. And um, in in Russell's case, we're talking about, you know, this is the the best explanation for our experiences. So that's, that's Russell. And then, um, Ben, you've got Barclay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So take from take from Locke the idea that, you know, we've got this sort of foundation of um, experiences. So he's kind of like chronologically almost like kind of straight after Locke. Take the, the idea that we've got this foundational set of experiences, which are just sense data, should we call them, ideas, colours, shapes, all that sort of stuff, out of which we build an idea of the world. His problem is that he's recognized what Locke has recognized. There's no point in talking about things like substance because we don't know what they are because they don't relate to any particular of these experiences. It's kind of like a a theoretical posit of what's beyond what we can sense. And Locke argues it's it's kind of a useful thing to talk about in some respects, but actually as a a real philosophical concept, you end up kind of in all sorts of loops and it's kind of empty really but he still thinks we can talk get an idea of what we mean by the material and by the physical and all that sort of stuff Barclay just says I accept you part way I accept that you have no idea about what these things are but that's exactly why you should reject all you know talk of them in that sense there is no physical reality there is no mind independent is probably the better way to put it there is no mind independent substance now that seems to put you back in evil demon territory well in which case his solution is that from that podcast, <laughs> input directly into your mind by God. So those that foundation of, of sense data, of ideas, is being put directly into your mind by God. How do we get out of that? How do we get out of the fact that then that leaves us with the evil demon scenario? Well, the point is that we only think that that's a problem because we're still caught up in the materialist idea that that has some extra thing which is real beyond it. And actually, what's um, once you accept that the foundation is reality, 
you're done. You don't need to bridge the gap between appearance and reality anymore because appearance is reality and we can just sack off scepticism. Great. That's wonderful. Um, So having thought then about empiricism, let's then think about something that some students find a little bit tricky in my experience, and that's reliabilism. So does someone want to take on reliabilism for us, Ben? Yeah, the um, thing to make sure that you grasp, I suppose, about reliabilism is that it's a it's a different approach to everything that we've looked at thus far in the in the podcast. That all the other views that we've looked at could be, even if they don't refer to themselves as this, can be roughly referred to as internalist accounts of justification. That is that they're all discussing how we justify knowledge claims and the way in which they presume that we justify knowledge claims is that we ourselves actively justify a claim. So unless you have actually got the reason why you believe it yourself and you know why you believe it, then it doesn't count as justification. And so what we end up with, and this is why we end up with scepticism, is because for every claim of I know that P, you also have to then introduce a kind of meta level of, and I know that I know that P, because I'm able to provide you with this justification. And so there's always this extra level of justification. It's not just that you're allowed to believe something true, it's that you've got to be able to justify that thing. And justifying it is an active kind of cognitive attempt to show why it is. It doesn't have to be to other people, just to yourself. You know why you believe it. You have a reason to believe it. But what if we took that idea and said that people do have a reason to believe things, but they don't have to know that they have a reason to believe things, that there is a there is a justification for what they believe, but you're not required to actually know what that justification is yourself. And this is where kind of reliabilism steps in and what we call the externalist approach to this. So imagine instead then that rather than saying that every time I have a, a, a true belief, it's only knowledge if, if I'm able to justify it. Come up with a uh, a theory or a whole bunch of theories that just try and say, and as long as that true belief was formed in the right way, it counts as knowledge. And you don't even have to know that it was formed in the right way. It just ha- if if basically go back to Zagzebski, you know, knowledge is this cognitive contact with the world. Then, as long as that cognitive contact has been made in an appropriate way, then it counts as being knowledge. So. What reliabilists say is that really you need to be using, you need to have a a true belief, which is the result of a reliable cognitive process. Let's take a cognitive process like something like memory. Um, What would make memory a reliable cognitive process? Well, memory is the process of retaining and retrieving information. So a reliable retention and retrieving system for, for information would be one which manages to retain information, manages to take it in and retain it, doesn't disappear, and then is able to retrieve it in as close as you can get to the original form that it was retained in. And if your memory can do that, then it is a reliable cognitive process. Now, we can then add, because obviously psychology students will be sitting there going, oh, memory has all these problems, eyewitness testimony, all this sort of stuff. Exactly. This is precisely what we're talking about. We're talking about the fact that 
if I forget where my car keys are, then I can use memory reliably to find out where they are. And if they're not where I think that I left them, I have this other bunch of cognitive processes, which I can use to kind of plausibly work out the probability of where I've left them if they weren't in the obvious place and rule out other things. And these all lead me to the truth reliably and regularly. Whereas I know that there are other cases where that isn't the case, that that memory isn't 100% reliable because if I'm in a panic or, you know, if there's been a car accident and there's a panic going on, my head's all over the place, then my memory becomes less reliable, for example. Or if I've been drinking too much, then my memory becomes less reliable and so on and so on. So you've got this idea that we don't need to have this ability to be able to give the reasons why we believe things. You just have to form those beliefs in the right way. And the reason this kind of undercut skepticism is because you just don't get on that treadmill. You just don't get on. You don't take the bait. When they say, and how do you know that? You say, well, I remember. And they say, yeah, but how do you know your memory works? You go, because I don't have to know that. It does. It doesn't. I can have that discussion with you, but it doesn't make a change to the original claim. The original claim is knowledge or not, regardless of how much other justification about the world I can give you. It, it will still be a reliably formed belief, or it won't. Great, that was really helpful, Ben. So the next question from me then: How do students respond to that? Well. Well, I was saying to you earlier, Simon, they can see it as a little bit, well, quite a lot of a sidestep because you've suddenly said to them, right, well, um, justification is the wrong thing to look for when we're trying to confirm what knowledge is and what you need to look for is this reliable process. So whilst, you know, they're quite up for, you know, different ways to navigate the problem, you've got to remember that you might be presenting this this to them in terms of a 25 marker where it's all about defeating the sceptic. And so if you bring it back to scepticism, and we can do that in a minute, and we can think about how reliabilism responds to the brain in a vat evil demon problem. Um, yeah, I think they're nervous to run with it because they think that it's too much of a sidestep. And it's such a radical sort of it's such a it's a, it's a different way of thinking about knowledge and and that's the full journey of the course isn't it the full journey of the unit on epistemology but yeah that's the word I hear a lot they feel like they're kind of ducking it or sidestepping it and then they say but you know in terms of this essay could we see this as kind of any sort of response or I mean it's certainly not a defeat but nor is the empiricist but yeah I would say that's the word they think of they think have I ducked this am I just kind of yeah is it too much of a sidestep and and they it's that wobble on are we happy about that way of thinking about knowledge which is a great question to leave it on and, and I love this last 25 marker to do with them it's it's a great thing to think about but yeah we could come back and think about how it deals with brain and a vat in a minute but Ben what do your students think? Um, they're I think very much of the, of the same idea that they, they there are a lot that see it as like you say a sidestep I think that the the conversations that we have tend to be the idea that there are still some other concerns, some slight internalist concerns, even if you want to be a reliabilist. So I've said there multiple times that, you know, kind of like my memory is good at, you know, helping me get to the truth. You know, it's it's reliable in the sense that it, it enables me to get to the truth more often than not. 
But actually, that is a that is a massive, bold epistemological claim that it gets me to the truth. It gets me something that I'm willing to accept as truth. Like we could go down the route of it tells me where my car keys are, but it doesn't tell me that I'm not currently dreaming and you know and that, that they really are my car keys and all those sorts of things. That they, there is a certain acceptance of a background upon which that reliable method is being used, and you can't go beyond certain metaphysical claims. You know, kind of certain basic claims about what you're dealing with and go into the metaphysical claims of of what's happening in the background that give you the nice solid foundation upon which you're using these reliable methods and all that sort of stuff. I think that what we normally end up discussing to some extent is how much all of these feed into each other and not only raise issues for each other, but can kind of co-support each other. If you kind of have the reliablest approach, but then you take the empiricist approach that look we're never going to be having fallibilism we can only really work with what our senses are allowing us to know to some extent then reliabilism seems to fit in quite neatly just have an externalist version of empiricism where you say well we'll do what works i mean we'll just do what works and then you sort of start veering more towards pragmatism in some respects which is well worth students looking up like pragmatism and the extent to which some pragmatists at least almost either redefine truth as it's just what works um, or it's just what we've got the best. And truth just means the best explanation. It's not that we have the best explanation towards the truth, but that is what the truth is. Through to just kind of saying, you know, I've seen some pragmatists almost reject the notion of truth and say, well, if the truth is beyond us and we never know whether we've achieved it or not, why don't we just say that knowledge is just really well justified belief? I mean, what, what, if you never know that, that you've achieved the truth, there's no point in talking about it. It becomes a, a pointless exercise for us to actually deal with that. Like you just, all you have to do is go, well, I've got a better or worse reason for believing this. So I think reliabilism, they can see the purpose of it. They do see though, that unless I can actually show that the methods are reliable, then you're kind of stuck. There doesn't seem to be a reliable way to prove that memory is reliable and so on without then that ending in infinite regress. But then we don't just want to kind of say, well, take a little from column A and a little from column B and we've got the answer because that's not how this works either. But it starts getting them thinking about crossovers. Where can you take bits of things to piece together with other bits of things and make a coherent view and consistent view that might work? Great. Okay, can then can I can I move us on just to one last question there, which which Beth raised just a little while ago. How well do you think reliabilism copes with brain in a vat? Well, yeah, because the it links nicely to Ben's last point in that the reliabilist says we cannot know we're not brain in vats, but if we're not brain in vats, then you know we don't have knowledge. So we're back on this, um, you know. And and to maybe use the different example, Ben, you might do this with your students as well. The one about, you know having a million pounds in a bank account that we know nothing about. Um, I can't remember who does this in one of the textbooks, but you have a million pounds in a bank account we know nothing about. Um, might be the case that we are then millionaires, but it's pretty meaningless unless we are aware of the million pounds. Um, so in the same way, to have kind of um, knowledge of the external world, but then not be able to justify that knowledge just gets into this whole meaningless uh, issue that that Ben raised and so I think it's nice to go full circle and I, I like to go back with every theory and go well how does this deal with brain in a vat but then it doesn't have to be brain in a vat it can be another kind of 
thought experiment scenario because it makes you realize well back to the point we want them to be able to make in these kind of 25 mark essays in that where are you going to go like what what matters to you and obviously we'll have our views as people that teach this and it's it's just always interesting every time to think about you know what what does this mean for them then what what do they what where are they happy to go where are they happy to um what are they happy to sidestep or not really and I know where I am on this I don't like I don't know where everyone else is but you you've got to make that decision yourself haven't you in terms of not so much what position is best but yeah where next really yeah yeah, I th- I think that with with reliabilism and how well it deals with it, I I agree with that fully. It's the the the, the million pounds point is a good one. I think that I think the other side of it as well, and this may go back to actually the what is knowledge part of the course when you're looking at reliabilism. I mean, think about what these examples are actually meant to be showing us as well. I mean, think about the old example of let's say that the example I often use is remember a few World Cups ago there was that octopus that was able to predict the outcomes of, of football matches. Now he, he eventually it was a press thing, so event, you know they weren't all successful, and actually his hit rate wasn't that great. But let's say that we had an octopus that was able to predict um, that was able to predict football matches. I mean that would be a re- reliable method on the basis that it did more often than not pick the right one now what we would be interested in is understanding the mechanism that enables an octopus to pick the correct winner of a football match given that they don't have the cognitive power to be able to understand what football is um, and what results are and so on so we'd want to understand that mechanism so really the question about reliabilism even if it does sidestep attempt to sidestep the brain in a vat and just say, well, it doesn't matter. If you've got if you've got knowledge, you've got knowledge. And you've used this reliable method. I want to know why that is a reliable method. How does the reliable method work? Not just out of curiosity, but because it enables you to understand other places where things are reliable or how to improve reliability over here. Or if we're looking at artificial intelligence or the development of computing, then how we could try and replicate those mechanisms in computers in order to make processing power better and all these sorts of things. There's loads of reasons why I want, we want more than just it works. We we want to know why and how it works. Again, partly because of curiosity. We're philosophers, we're curious, all that sort of stuff. Scientists are curious, but also because we think it might have some further application. And so reliabilism seems to kind of think that we're okay with just being told, look, it works. Take, take the medicine. It cures you. Don't worry about how it works. It it cures you. Well, maybe we want to know more than that. <laughs> yeah, there's a problem there because, you know, when you're then having to model to the students where you are on all of this, like I always just say that this is all about, or scepticism is about sort of the epistemic judgment about the quality of my experience. And there is seriously qualitative lacking, lackings, if you like, in, in reliabilism. And they don't seem to mind those limitations, whereas I feel I like the empiricists because they do know their limitations and it's not like they're still not building up quality evidence or quality experience. That's why I struggle with reliabilism as well, Ben. Yeah, I'd agree that there's something really lacking there and that's that's... To be told it doesn't matter it is not the right approach. Yeah, I think it's a shame. That's why it's a shame to some extent that Hume is not the spec about this. Because in that final chapter, you do get a wonderful, but yes, you get all the stuff about committing it to the flames and all that sort of business. 
But you just get that wonderful part where he's kind of like, well, why why should I care about skepticism? And he's like, well, tolerance and modesty. I mean, like that, that, those are really important. You know, he was a guy that was aware of the fact that, you know, had he been born a little while earlier, he might have been hanged. You know, that he for, for his huge belief. practical huge practical bearing on everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and he's just like, you know, we do need to think about our limitations and our strengths. We need to know what we're capable of. But we need to know wherever there's an inside limit, there's an outer limit, there's the what falls outside that scope. And it's massively important that we question these things and just saying, ah, well, it works. I mean, that isn't good enough. It's true that it doesn't matter in certain in day-to-day contexts, but you can't just sidestep big issues or, or, or things like that because, you know, like we say, it, it, even if it's about What's going to stop me just saying that I've got a reliable method? Where's the tolerance and modesty in that? Where's the all that sort of stuff? Can't somebody just say the same about something else, maybe? And it's okay for 25 markers, isn't it, to bring like Hume, but also like when I mentioned G more earlier and Aya, they're really good here for those 25s that need that kind of back and forth. Yeah. Yeah, looking at looking at Russell, the will to believe, uh, the will to doubt is a, is a, a great paper to get them in Russell's mindset. Yeah, brilliant. About, about you know why he's saying the things that he's saying, and these are all great little additional things students can get. Like I mentioned, the pragmatists go and have a look at the pragmatists. There's loads of stuff going on out there which isn't covered, which all leads back to this big discussion. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Great. Well, listen, let's. Um leave things there thanks to both of you for coming on and sharing your thoughts uh ben thanks to you again for coming on no problem at all thank you as much thanks for having me and beth thanks to you as well thanks so much thanks for having me uh and thanks to you for listening i hope you enjoyed this episode i hope it was useful and i hope you listen to some more episodes of philosophy gets schooled (laughs) 